This is Making It Up, a weekly cultured news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of light catch up and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself. We pick our topics from the Macon Briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On Making It Up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion, often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. If you do do one thing and one thing only regarding this podcast, and obviously you're a fan, please pass this along to one of your more intelligent friends who care more about creative culture than just the latest drops and what celebrity was wearing yesterday. Yo. Yo. How's it going? One second, one second. <sighs> Jesus. Make sure to cut that part out. <laughs> oh, man. I'm good. Who knew that school was so exhausting? How was your week of final exams? Not that stressful. I can't say it was that stressful, but it was definitely a ramp up in work. Like I was at school every day, I think for eight hours. But the thing about school that's so much more exhausting is like the other people part of it. You need to clarify that statement. When you go into work, like when you work at Macon, there's periods of time where everyone's just doing their own thing, right? And then when you all feel like you're ready for a break, then maybe you go play FIFA. <laughs> or when there's like a scheduled editorial meeting, then you come together to talk about the editorial meeting. Yes. But the thing about school is that people are talking to you all the time at any moment in time because there's like a hundred people in my program and it's very not controllable. So you can never really get individual work done. There's never like a set time where everyone is actually quietly working in front of their machine. And I think that's, that's what's tiring. Isn't that an issue? Um, yeah, I actually do think so. I think because so. Is it because they haven't broken off periods of time for people to just be alone and or quietly working? My program is very non-structured. So Basically, during finals week, we just had independent work for the entire week up until our reviews. And then it's like up to us to schedule that however you want it to look like. So if you wanted independent time, you'd either have to be like super clear with everyone or you would just have to not show up in the studio space. Would you be punished if you didn't work collaboratively? No. Punished sounds really harsh. School's not really like that. You wouldn't be punished. I think the goal is to work collaboratively, but the way in which you go about that is up to you. So you have to really think about, you know, what works best for you when collaborating with other people. I don't not value that. I just think that that's part of the reason why I'm so tired is because even though I wasn't that stressed about it, I spent a lot of time doing like fractured yeah. things. Anyway, how are you? I'm good. I was getting over a bit of a cold, but actually it didn't last that long. So I'm pretty happy with that. How was Bangkok? Bangkok was Bangkok. I mean, it's it's always an exciting place to go to. This time the traffic was some next level shit. Like <laughs> literally took an hour to get anywhere. But I think ultimately like Bangkok, I think a lot of people that are, that end up moving there anyways, they really enjoy Bangkok. So... It's kind of this nice mix of excitement, personality, and obviously the standard of living versus the the cost of living is is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious, like if 
I've, I've always been thinking about that. And I'm, I'm wondering how much should we value that when we're looking at emerging countries as places to set up shop? Well, which part of what you said is what you're So like, for about. example, if I move to like, let's say you live in the United States, right? And you move from New York to, I don't know, the Midwest, like Austin, Texas or something where the standard of living might be a little mm-hmm. bit cheaper. Whereas like, it's still kind of a mm-hmm. parallel move. You're, you're still in the same sort of socioeconomic structure. But then if you're moving to somewhere like Bangkok, which is obviously an emerging country, developing country, you're doing it under the pretense of you, I don't even know the right word. You're able to take advantage of the fact, the standard of living and just like the actual sort of pay of other people, et cetera. Like that's kind of where you're saving a lot of money, right? Does that make sense? Right. Like the cost of labor is lower. And that's in some ways where, where right. a lot of the cost savings are created. Maybe I'm thinking too much into this, but I was thinking about that as people try to figure out, you know, where's the next place to move to or people that end up moving to like emerging or developing countries, how that sort of factors in the overall decision. I don't know if you listened to it, but so one of the stories we published last week. The Joan one? I haven't listened to it my, yet. Yeah, my conversation with Joan and actually the beginning, I think the first six minutes of that conversation is about her feelings towards Chiang Mai yeah. and how her living style was so comfortable there for a really cheap price, but how it's a little different because she didn't move there, right? Like she was essentially like an extended tourist, but how that feeling made her feel guilt because everyone was so in service of her and the people she yeah. was with. I think this is also compounded by the fact Nicole just came back from India as well. And it's like people have, I don't even know, we're servants, domestic helpers, whatever you want to call them, but not just one, like two or three. Yeah. Right. And it's just hearing how you yeah. look at that experience where you're able to buy I don't know buy. I'm 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 at a loss for words because I don't really know. I'm almost trying to be too politically correct here, but you're able to acquire the services of people to make your life more convenient at a drastically reduced cost. Yeah, and I kind of pushed back at Joan a little bit. I said, well, they are an economy that requires tourism, at least right now. So you are part of that system. So you keeping yourself from enjoying it or being part of that doesn't really make sense. It would only, it only makes sense on an individual level. It doesn't change the reality of what's happening around you. And then she was talking about what if we abstained from traveling to certain places? Like what if we said, even though I really enjoy Chiang Mai and I can see how, you know, I would save on so much, I'm actually not going to do it because it's ruining their themselves building their own more sustainable economy. I don't know. I don't really know if there's an answer there. A lot of people that I met over the course of the past week had moved there from like Shanghai or Singapore or whatever, or like the, or Europe. And everyone often comments on how they really enjoy living in Bangkok, but do they enjoy living in Bangkok on the basis that their standard of living has increased drastically? So I don't know if that's right or wrong, to be honest. Like, I don't think it's, it, it kind of sounds as though I'm, I'm against all sorts of comfort, but it's more like the reality of what is the underlying reason why your standard of living has actually increased. 
versus other things like, hey, you know what? The, the air quality is better. Like that's a different thing, right? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, actually, speaking of comfort and you just describing yourself as sounding like you're against all comfort, I thought of you yesterday because we have to make choices for um, the projects we'll be doing in the next two terms. And then I was speaking with a classmate about it and he said, I'm going to intentionally pick things that would make me uncomfortable because I want to be in situations that provide discomfort so that I'm not just doing the things that I would naturally gravitate towards. Yeah, that sounds like something I do. And that entire, yeah, the entire philosophy sounded like you. But don't you <laughs> think that it's it's kind of shown itself to be successful over time? Like how many artists have well, what I generally found their best work in times of discomfort or sadness or anger, depression. Oh, that goes straight into the Mike Shinoda piece, what you just yeah. said there. Because he addresses that and he says it's really dangerous. Yeah, totally. He says it's it's really dangerous to link the work you create to being in a certain state of mind or a certain life situation. Because if you link your best work to being unhappy or uncomfortable, then you'll feel like I need to be unhappy and uncomfortable to keep creating. I feel like I haven't done my homework this week, but I was traveling the last last few days. So I'm, I'm kind of behind on the stories. That's but fine. That's fine because Dillian on Twitter said the reason he listens to this podcast is for me bringing the I know. knowledge. You have the knowledge. So. I'm just here for the ride. We're playing our roles to the T. Um, but anyway, back to my classmate. So what I said to him, which is the same thing I swear that I've said to you before, is you have to know yourself well enough. Some discomfort can be good, but if you are so uncomfortable that you become unproductive, that you spend all of your time like recuperating and trying to find security, then that's not very useful at all. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but maybe... Your outcome or your success is really based on your overall stamina, meaning not everyone has a long-term and sustainable approach to great work. Maybe it's like, hey, this is a, a sprint for me to create my absolute best work. And after it's done, I might not ever achieve those levels again. And maybe some people are okay with it. I don't know. You never really know how far you can take something until you've actually done it. And you look back and see, hey... This was far too much and far too excruciating for me to ever do again. Well, maybe what we need to think about is also that the way we work best doesn't have to just be confined to one situation. Whatever system that you and I have set up for ourselves that work right now doesn't mean that has to be the only solution. Maybe that there is another solution out there that we haven't tried. What if you were in extreme comfort? What if you did have five servants and didn't have to worry about, you know, that you were paying just like a dollar every day for lunch, then maybe that would result in, like, that's not a situation we've tried either, right? We can only hypothesize that that that, that isn't a productive situation, but it could be. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's always going to be that the analogy of going to the gym where too much stress is detrimental, but the right amount is obviously positive. So maybe we could talk about some of the other stories we did this past week. After a bit of hiatus, we did building the brand, one on community governance. I think this is conceptually something really interesting because 
we're now seeing a shift in how brands, companies, and things in general are being created and conceived, which means that in the past, it was almost as though we're generally speaking, just consumers in the space. It's like someone put something out in the world and we consumed it. Now we're helping dictate things through community. And then the end result as a consumer is arguably stronger. There's a bit of a discussion going on in terms of this. And like, you know, us as Macon, we're, we're really big on introducing and bringing the community aspect, but also thinking like, what is the balance between someone that just wants to be put onto new things and explained what's cool versus someone that wants to help influence the narrative? So I don't think there really is a one size fits all and different situations will result in different sort of outcomes. But I think in general, I think it's an interesting concept and brands I feel will have to shift in terms of how they create things because in the past, the structures to create something were, hey, you have a creative team. They work within a small sort of path of people within the company itself. But now if you start introducing larger amounts of input, how do you consolidate that? How do you utilize it properly? How do you create systems that eventually translate into some sort of end product? And then other things we did this week, we did Beats by Delph Volume 1. So Delph or Elphic, our sound producer, he's been working on this project where he basically locked himself in the studio, aka our our office, you know, every night for 30 days creating a beat. And he said it was pretty laborious. Like it was taking him upwards of like three hours to do like a one minute beat. And then he soon paired it with his own images that he took. So I think overall is a pretty cool concept that he put together for Elphic. I think it's a good way to test himself. And it almost, it's sort of the ongoing narrative of this week where it's like, hey, how much do you put yourself in a difficult situation or push yourself to the limits because I think there's part of him that also wanted to just like quit. You know, it's like you're putting in yeah. three hours a day when you don't want to do it. But, you know, the yeah. night comes. But yeah, it's so interesting. It is so interesting because when I talked to him about it, he said, hey, I've seen my other friends and these other producers. I know they make so much great work and they do it so quickly. I want to see if I can do that. So it was partially, this kind of follows on from last week. It was partially inspired by envy, I'd say, or maybe envy is not the exact right word, but by looking outside of yourself and wondering if you can do something similar. I think it's just important for you to do it on your own terms and push yourself on your own terms because more often than not... But the original initiative was external. But I still think of regardless, like push yourself on your own terms. And I that's the right sort of way because it's just like... The thing we talked about a few weeks ago, it's like your personal project is the testing ground. So my topic this week is Craigslist is quietly changing how much Americans throw away. So this story originated in Fast Company where it discussed how Craigslist plays a role in the reduction of waste and how it changes people's consumer behavior. And one of the most interesting things around the story itself was that the average American generates about 1,500 pounds of garbage annually. And obviously, there's a lot of tax dollars that are spent disposing of this, despite the fact that recycling has become something that has generally been accepted in the Western world. There's still a lot of 
trash accumulating and obviously where does it go? There can go to landfills. Well, the recycling infrastructure has just not been fully built out yeah. yet. But that's like a whole other conversation about the issues with recycling, yeah. as in recycling materials, like raw materials. To give you a bit of background, if you're not familiar with Craigslist or you haven't lived in North America, it was started by Greg Newmark in 1995 in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And it grew quite rapidly, although it never really had a very clear sort of path towards monetization. I actually don't even know how it makes money now. Probably through oh, ads. Oh, I have no idea. Something like that. Ads, ads. Yeah. It has to so it ads. operates in 413 U.S. metro regions with more than 400 million visitors every month, mostly North American. So the basic premise behind Craigslist is that it's the modern day classified section, but online. And let's say that you have something to sell. You can put it up there and hopefully match yourself with a buyer. Likewise, if you're looking to buy something, you can also put it out there and hopefully you can find somebody who has this service and or has this item. So it generally works well for things that are maybe a little bit offbeat, a little bit more random. And you see people offering weird services sometimes. You know, hopefully you can find something that you're looking for. You know, just put it out in the world and see what the feedback and reaction from the community is. So the author of this piece, who I'm probably going to butcher his name, Suvrat Danakar, I think that sounds right. He looked into some of the regions that had the most robust solid waste management data, and they included California, Florida, Minnesota, North Carolina, and South Carolina. So his goal was to take the data from these places and use statistical techniques and see what happens with the solid waste rates in these counties relative to the growth of Craigslist. Before and after Craigslist arrived. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry if I wasn't clear on that, but basically, yeah, the before and after of what role Craigslist has on the overall amount of solid waste. Which is not totally foolproof because it's possible that a decline could be related to something else that happened at the same time, but it's still pretty good. Mm, I don't disagree with that, but then another way of looking at it is I'm curious what the general consumer levels have been over the course of North American culture or the culture in general. So like, let's say hypothetically, you know, cost of goods or... Yeah, that's true. If the amount of things people have bought has increased, let's say by 10% year over year, that's probably not an accurate stat, but you know what I mean, right? And like if it... Yeah, those aren't stats that are included in this article though. So we don't actually know. We don't know what the consumption is. We only know what the waste produces. Correct. So anyways, he what he did was after his research, he found that consumer generated waste declines by three to 5% when Craigslist becomes active in an area. So that means, and it also meant there was a shift as well into the way local residents would consume stuff like furniture, clothing, appliances, and other sort of what looks like bigger ticket items. Clothing obviously doesn't really fit in that. The reason I picked this, despite the fact Craigslist is very much a North American, American phenomenon, was that there's the potential to look at what role these types of platforms play. As the number of items listed grows, there's a chance that you're able to pair buyers and sellers on a much broader scale. And the obvious positive externality of that is that there's reduced waste. And to a degree, if you're buying used things, you're also, you're purchasing less new goods. Yeah. I wonder if this is possible to link to existing marketplaces like Amazon, 
Amazon is really the only one I'm thinking of. I don't know why I said marketplace is plural, but Amazon does sell some used items, but it I could mean, sell eBay. a whole lot more. But the thing is that usually when people, at least here, now that I've moved to the UK, when we needed any kind of item or any classmate mentions an item, the first thing people check is mm-hmm. Amazon before they even check like the store down the street because they imagine, or I don't know if we're right or not, but that the price you're getting on Amazon is better. So if you could somehow link secondhand products to Amazon, it would, I imagine that it would amplify the same effect that this author found on Craigslist. The one thing that comes down to branding, in my opinion, is that Craigslist, for the most part, focuses a lot on the used good side of things. And also think of things that you want to see in person that are kind of like... Such as what? Like furniture, for example. Like mm, like furniture might be you coming over to someone's place and checking out. And also, I think that there's another part of it that also means that the lo- local aspect of it reduces the ability to get ripped off, right? Because you're meeting with somebody yeah. and you can vet whether something is authentic or not. But I think your argument about Amazon needs to be broken down into maybe smaller parts where I think Amazon in terms of branding is meant to be a marketplace for new things. Like I don't think of going to Amazon for used items. And secondly, I think that the types of experiences people think about or the types of things they need to buy when Amazon comes up are very distinct as well. So it means that things that are maybe what do a you little mean? bit... What kind of items are you I'm thinking, thinking of? I'm thinking like anything from household items to things that are a little bit more niche. Whereas I think that when I, when I think of Craigslist, I think of all items that fall within a broader sort of household spectrum. But you just said household twice. Sorry, so I'm like not I should, really I should, I should sure what you see. Clarify. I'm not really sure what the difference is. I think household here. to me would be like toothpaste, like cleaning products and whatnot. Things that uh, have okay, yeah. Well, you can't you can't buy those exactly. secondhand because those are items you use. Like as in, actually, uh, there must be a better word than use. Those are items that you can use to completion. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So I think that everything on the flip side, that's sort of where Craigslist comes into the mix. Huh. Interesting. Because I bought speakers off of Amazon, but. Had I had a Craigslist option, I would have been equally inclined to buy the same speakers off of Craigslist. But would you have been a little bit weary that what you're buying off Craigslist might have been a dud? Like there's a reason why someone's selling them. That's true. So I think that when it comes to anything that Um, has a potential performance aspect to it, then you're a little bit weary. I mean, people also buy cars off Craigslist. So one of the questions that I feel like you're investigating is... Can we as a society encourage better object usage and extend the lifestyle of the, sorry. And can we extend the lifespan of objects across society? So in order to make that happen, we have to start trusting each other. We have to start trusting strangers more and then also being trustworthy people in passing on items. You're pretty much pushing this conversation in the direction that I was curious about. And it's which items are befitting of the secondhand market. And if they are in fact just as good, if not better, 
I mean, better is, is subjective, but better could be more efficient, cheaper, whatever it may be. How do you start building out these marketplaces? Because we recognize there's mm -hmm. several positive externalities that come from it. So you as a consumer get cheaper prices, less things get produced. Not to say that it would necessarily influence how much stuff gets produced in the first place. But I think it's something to consider, right? I think a major barrier to having this happen is the logistics of it, because it means getting objects out of people's homes into a centralized location and then putting them into other homes again. Or you have to establish better networks from home to home. I mean, everyone has moved before. Well, most people have probably moved one time yeah. in their life. And when you move, you suddenly have all of this stuff that still works, but you don't want to take with yeah. you. And I don't think anyone thinks, oh, I would love for all of this stuff to go into a landfill. So commonly people think, oh, I wish this could go to another home, but I don't know who needs it. Like, I don't know yeah. who wants it. If you look at a Craigslist versus an Amazon versus just anything that's selling something new, right? What do you think would encourage people to seek out secondhand products more frequently? I think convenience and options because the thing is often when we... What about awareness? So like when you bought those speakers, for example. I guess awareness of a platform. I feel like most people don't... I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong because I can only think about myself, obviously. I feel like if we had the option of a platform that could provide the same products in the same timely manner, then we would use that. Like, I don't think the newness is actually the reason why we buy new... Okay, so excluding certain items. Like I'm thinking about things like a vacuum or a speaker or like a hairdryer, right? Like those things. I don't think we buy them new because we want this new shiny item. We buy them because that's the quickest way to acquire them. Mm -hmm. And the going the second hand route means you know, we go back to the idea of being uncomfortable. It means being uncomfortable for a little bit of time because right now you can't get a secondhand vacuum cleaner as quickly as you can get a new vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And somehow like, I guess we're fortunate, We're you and I are fortunate enough that in terms of our budgets, we can afford to pay that extra amount of money to get it now rather than to wait for a cheaper yeah. price. I think looking at your argument about how... Amazon is actually kind of achieving what you're suggesting. Uh, I'm more hung up on the idea of the branding side. And what I mean by that is I don't think people look at Amazon as a place for secondary goods. Yeah. Like you don't go there to look at used things. It's just so much. It just happens to be there. And creating that understanding that you can do that, I think changes the game. But you can even look at it now where... Generally speaking, I don't see the ability to buy something used on a lot of items. Or maybe it's just the items I'm looking at, to be honest. No, I, I agree. I don't think that that is in the Amazon branding. I think what I meant earlier or what I am thinking about now is how the Amazon logistics is what we want. And if we could have something similar approaching that for secondhand items, then people would be more inclined to buy it. Yeah. Even as simple as a website that's as easy to search as Amazon, like Craigslist is not really that. And then just being able to like compare prices and then, you know, have things shipped to us. Like those are things that we would expect from 
our purchasing patterns. I'd be really interested to know people's perspectives from a seller side, what they're aiming to achieve by selling on Craigslist. Is it to just recoup some money? Is it to make a profit, et cetera? Like what is their threshold? Because what happens if a service existed where you would not get paid the full amount? And I'm sure these exist. Someone's done it before, but I'm just curious why it hasn't taken off. But let's say you have a pair of speakers and you could get $100 for them if you sold them yourself, but you'd get them for $75 if you sold them to someone else. I mean, the margins probably would necessitate the cost to be higher, but I'm wondering if there's something like that because... That to me makes like perfect sense because some people are not willing to go through the trouble and time to sell something. Yeah. They just want to make a little bit of money. Well, sometimes it's, I mean, yes, you want to make a little bit of money. And also it's just like, it seems a shame to toss something out. So to give you an example that I was on GOAT. Wait, can you have to explain what GOAT is really quick? One sentence. Yes. For people unfamiliar, GOAT is a marketplace. And what that allows you to do is let's say Sharice has a pair of shoes that she wants to sell. She maintains possession of those shoes. And let's say I want to buy them, right? Okay. I purchase them. And as I understand, there are two options. Either the shoes get sent to GOAT who verifies them and then forwards them onto me, or there are pre-verified shoes. But the pre-verified shoes, since they can be dispatched quicker, are more expensive. That to me was a little bit different. It made me think of this idea a little bit, but since it's a luxury good, it changes the dynamic because people are more price insensitive to luxuries than for what are arguably more commodity driven items. Like furniture on Craigslist is purchased more so as a commodity. I think ultimately what I would like to see is like this concept pick up steam more and maybe, maybe Craigslist is just a small sort of like tweak in the business away from being a true like sort of global utility. I don't know. I would like to think that, hey, you know what? If Craigslist was something that could, through its infrastructure and scale, just basically become a global phenomenon, imagine 3 to 5% reductions in waste across the board. Like that's pretty significant. I think it's been slow, but people will increasingly see the need, I feel like this past year, climate change and the environmental situation have been really top of the average person's mind. So that, at least I'm hopeful, I think that will change the regular person's consumption habits. Like it's reaching a point where it's not okay to not think about it. Like there is a societal pressure to be more environmentally conscious. So my topic today is an editor's letter written by Tavi Jevonson of Rookie Mag. Tavi started Rookie Mag when she was 15 in 2011. And to just give an idea of what 2011 was like, even though it was only seven years ago, Instagram didn't exist yet and people were still using flip phones. So the internet was like in a totally different place. And so when she was 15, she started this online publication plus like a print publication called Rookie. And in this editor's letter, she really talks about it as starting it as an art project 
I mean, she was also 15, right? And starting anything when you're 15 and having a clear idea of what you want it to be is already really admirable. So she starts as an art project and then it evolves into something that is a business, not because she really wanted it to. She actually talks a lot about how she didn't want it to be a business, but because that business aspect was necessary for the art project to exist. And she really started Rookie for teenage girls. And that is the main audience. Other people do come to it of all types, but when it started, she really did want want to provide a place that was encouraging and creatively nurturing to teenage girls. And she thought that there was a lack of that in other places. So the reason I picked this, oh, I actually don't think I explained the big picture thing. So Rookie is not publishing new content anymore. This editor's letter, like she's written it to explain why Rookie is coming to an end. She goes into like really clear detail, like the last couple of years of her thought process that has led to this point. And when I told you I wanted to talk about this, this isn't something that was included in the briefing because it just happened yesterday or two days ago, November 30th. I told you I actually didn't want to talk so much about the media side of it. She does address that. She talks about how, you know, Rookie is not the only online publication struggling. Lots of other publications have a hard time now. And we've talked about it ourselves several times. We basically talk about it whenever another publication bites the dust. But the reason I was interested in talking about this is because Tavi is really clear on why she does things and why she doesn't want to do other things. And I think it is weirdly very on theme for this episode about knowing what you're comfortable with and knowing how much discomfort is sufficient. And I guess I was just impressed with her being able to look back at the decisions she'd made and write about it with clarity in terms of this is something I didn't accept. And then through a process, through different events, now I am able to accept it. And for her specifically, that's like in relation to investment money. And then also in relation to how she wanted Rookie to stay true to certain things that she started it for and wasn't able to compromise on those things. And I guess what I'm curious about is how do you really know what you want to pursue and your reasons for pursuing it? I I don't think you need to have an answer for that because something internally in your mind has already made the decision for you to go and pursue it enough for you to get off the couch and actually do it. And I think retroactively looking back at her experiences and I have to, I have to kind of give the the preface like I started reading it but I was turned off by the fact that it was paginated. <laughs> so this is small small detail like I didn't want to click through five pages. I'm reading part of it now. But I think ultimately when you look at it People fail to understand, and I and I say this wholeheartedly, people fail to understand that your game plan at any given moment can change and can be different. And sometimes people feel a sense of impurity to an idea or thought as a creative when it deviates from what they originally thought it would be. And I think sometimes you need to recognize that there's a purity in action when you understand that, hey, times are changing right? Just because what you thought it was going to be has not revealed itself to be the truth. It doesn't make you inauthentic if you change your mind or you have to change course. And I I think that's what I kind of get. And there is a romantic notion of I have a vision, but sometimes you have to let yourself also 
change as well. Like, do you, do you think after reading this that there's a sense of preciousness to what Rookie was in, in the very beginning that she's holding on to? Yeah, I think so. But she talks about reaching, like starting out and not wanting to do any investment of any kind and then eventually reaching a point where she was in serious talks with an angel investor and then deciding that she actually did not want the angel investor to say yes. This is me being a bit of a dick, but like if you're going to start a magazine, you're going to hire people. And this is obviously hand in hand with the fact she started this when she was what, 14? 15. Like 15, you're taking on the responsibility of people that you're hiring. Yeah. And to not want to create a business out of it, like almost, that's almost irresponsible in a way. And I'm not trying to, I don't want to really use this narrative, but I think you have to look at it from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's like Tavi, she's already precocious, right? Like you and I were not starting businesses at the ages of 15. So I don't want to be too, you know too much of a yeah, dick yeah, yeah. about it. But I just think um, that that's like the bigger no, but she picture. Talks that about, she talks about responsibility too in this piece. I actually do recommend it even though it is paginated. Um, she does talk <laughs> about responsibility. Responsibility too. But she talks about responsibility to a lot of different things. You know, yes, there's a responsibility to the people you hired, but there's also responsibility to eventually your investor. And is that a responsibility that you want to take on? And also for her, the most important thing, even above like the people you hire is the people who are reading Rookie and the community that she supported and what what is doing the thing that is the most right by them. Yeah. But I guess what I'm curious about is not or not curious, but what I think about when I picked this to talk about isn't that it's sad that rookie is closing. It is sad, but we don't have to talk about it at length. Is how you go about in the midst of making decisions having any idea what's right for yourself slash right for the job that you have taken on? My perspective on it, which I think is very difficult for most people to wrap their head around, but it's it's kind of a binary outcome. It's like you look at whatever happens, good or bad, and you recognize there's a moment to grow from it. But people sometimes are paralyzed by the fact they need to be on the right path or the right decision at any given moment that whatever failure could potentially be looming around the corner is all in all a bad thing. But how do you know the direction you're growing in is the correct direction? The thing is, it doesn't matter though. It's like if you're already of the mindset that I'm going to learn something from this outcome, it's almost as though the commitment to a direction is critically more important than being paralyzed and not being sure which is the right or wrong way to go. So I say that on the basis that when you make a mistake, you've closed the door, right? And you know this is the wrong thing. Like generally speaking, people know when they make a mistake. It's when people are precious to the idea that this mistake is actually the right way. Like obviously this is getting into the complexities of making decisions as a business. Sometimes a commitment to the idea is more important than actually being right or wrong. I do agree that yes, you know, this could be a big mistake and like you've made a bet on something. If you're in a position where your next decision is a make or break one, then there there's a potential that there were a lot of missteps along the way that contributed to you being there. That's maybe a generalization, but I also think that, you know, there's an article I sent over about like four or five different pivots that Mike.com made. Right. And obviously they as a 
as a media company weathered the first three or four or five of them before the last one finally killed them. I think about when you, you commit to a decision and you're going down that path when you don't know how it's going to pan out. At what point do you know that you need to switch again? What are the signals to you that this isn't working out and that this isn't going to work out and that you need to like cut your losses and change? I mean, the unsexy way of looking at it is, is data, but the the other way of looking at it is really what sort of feedback and validation are you getting? But what feedback and validation are you looking for as well? I'm not saying that data is not important, but I think I am thinking more of it as like a personal decision. You know, how do you, so let, how do you let's, Eugene, let's, know that pursuing Macon has reached some final point if that happens? I was actually going to bring it back to Macon, but if we did this week in, week out and worked as hard as we did, but we had no validation, no feedback, good or bad, how would you feel about it? I think that it would definitely change. But the thing is like, don't you wind up in a, maybe you don't because of who you are, but in your brain, does it ever happen where you think, okay, we might not be getting the feedback or validation now, but we will in six months when we do X, Y, Z or in one year when we get ABC? Yes, I do. I mean, I have to be on a sort of steadfast, sort of uh, confident approach to how things are. But that's the thing is that there's this fine balance, I think, with starting something new or starting something from scratch that you need to balance out the validation, your own vision, your appetite for risk. How far can you do this because you truly believe in it? So it's like this, this stew of things. And as I read this letter by by Tavi like in some ways it was maybe the wrong time as well for her like I think that maybe if she had built this publication and media company two years ago or one year ago versus what 2011 you but said don't you think that in 2011 she was able to get an audience whereas now she wouldn't even be able to cut through the noise of things I'm utilizing the expectation that her quote-unquote fame has parallels and could be pulled into like a magazine world. But regardless, like let's not go over sort of the details of that. What what I'm trying to get at is the type of company she was trying to build or she needed to build in 2011 is different than the type of media company that one needs to build in 2017, 18. Yeah, of course. Right? So I think that's part of it. And I can only imagine... So let's use an example like if she was like a Sophia Amoruso, right? Mm-hmm. And she created a company that, you know, like Nasty Gal, had immediate sort of validation and a community like Nasty Gal has, and she translated it into a media company. That to me feels like it, it's sort of a similar story, but obviously not to say that Nasty Gal hasn't been without its own problems. But I think that if you look at it from that perspective, there is a way of looking that 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 opportunity and seeing how you would approach it today that changes. I think that looking at the way she did it, it was probably easier to build a media company in 2011 and her lack of desire to monetize. And I'm not saying that's bad, right? It's just that the way that she had envisioned it didn't set Rookie up to be successful, you know, seven yeah. years later. Yeah. I mean, also a big part of this, we haven't really dwelt on it, but a big part of this is her age, right? And wanting to start something that was mostly for your personal satisfaction. 
and but you're totally right. Like when you start out with that, I wouldn't say goal. When you start out with that kind of structure of something that is personally self-satisfying and hopefully can be satisfying to other people, then it is really hard to then change your way halfway through and thinking about how does this make money to the people that, for the people that I am responsible for. But also part of the, it takes a while to get there because she talks about it in like page five, but she talks about what she herself is interested in pursuing as in Tavi, the individual. And it turns out to not be rookie anymore. That is something that is interesting to me to tune into what, Maybe what I'm doing is success in this in her case, no, right? Like in her case, rookie was going through a lot of problems, but she was also able to find out actually this is not what I am this is not even what I want to have succeed. I want to have different things succeed. And how would you be able to identify that for yourself? Totally. I think timing is such a crucial part of the whole equation because she started this at a time when social media wasn't big. Let's say hypothetically she got big now. She arguably could continue to achieve the same things on Instagram. Mind you, obviously yeah, writing yeah. is something she's really passionate about, but maybe it would have been That's a true. lighter weight approach to it where the top of the funnel is her Instagram and she could keep a WordPress site for her personal musings and you know here and there sprinkle things in. The timing element, it's like, she also was just so young. Like, honestly, I'm not thinking about making a shitload of money when I'm 14. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like if yeah. she was, let's say she was 22 when she started Rookie, it might have changed the whole trajectory of it all. Yeah. Maybe there would, would have been a better business mindset. I mean, I wish her the best of luck and I'm sure that whatever comes in the next seven years is going to be better. How, how old is she now? 22. Shit, that's still so young. I know, right? I know. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I guess because we're older, so maybe we're, we probably aren't changing as quickly, right? Like... If you think back to yourself between 15 and 22, what you wanted changed every year. And now that we're older, that's kind of no longer the case. But I still think about, would I be able to be honest with myself about what it is that I'm individually interested in having succeed? The thing that I look at too, and I think that my answers are arguably a bit more pragmatic, heavy-handed and I'm not here to shit on Tavi's, you know, vision of what rookie was supposed to be. But I do look at it now and I think that there's a balance between, like I said at the very beginning or towards the beginning, it's like the responsibility you have to your team that you've hired mm -hmm. to ensure they have a livelihood. Mm -hmm. That's one way of looking at it. Secondly, is also, is the world better off with a slightly watered down version of rookie or no rookie mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or is the third one that it's really down to what Tavi wants. And that's also okay. You know, yeah. she's like, Hey, it's either my complete unadulterated artistic vision or don't do it at all. Then unfortunately the rest of the, the Tavi slash rookie community will suffer for that. I just think about the last thing that I think about is how I have more freedom than you. Because my name is not intrinsically linked to <laughs> a certain brand or a company. I haven't started anything where I have to hire someone else. Um, that, that does give me more freedom, I think. I've been thinking about this a lot too. And like, what does failure look like in the context of making? It's like, yeah, your name's associated with it. But I'm pretty... For me, failure 
is failing myself more than it's failing other people. Because I think my expectation is quite high in that regard. Like, but that's such a different thing that you're saying now versus like two minutes ago when you were talking exactly. about the responsibility you have to the people you hire. Because I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I didn't hire Elphick and Nate and Scott. You did. Exactly. But I said that under the pretense of like, I think my my own personal sort of expectation of it all, like I've, the the pressure I put on myself is in part both the internal, external people. Like I, the thing is by virtue of never, never letting myself fail could be my downfall as well. So I don't know. Like I, it's interesting because like, I mean, as she mentions, like media companies are struggling. And I think that any media company now, it's like, you're not raking in the dough, but if you are smart, there's probably a way you could figure it out to create something that's uniquely different and monetizable. It's just how long does it take you to find that? And what is the overall roadmap? And are you okay with that roadmap? So like, for example, if Rookie became a TV show, but it paid the bills, would she be okay with it? And if she's not, then what else can you really do? But I think overall, this was a really interesting topic. It does drill down to the discussion around sustainability and your own vision. Yeah. Because... I remember someone mentioning this. I think it was like Toby from Cavempt, which is like a streetwear brand. And he was saying, you can have your own vision for something, but the minute it's released into the public, you can try your best to control it, but it's futile. Yeah. I think that's a good place to wrap things up. If you are interested in learning more about Macon, reading and listening to our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makein.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. And if you do one thing and one thing only, please share this podcast with a friend. That's all we ask for. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can always DM us on Instagram at M-A-E-K-A-N or you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com and Eugene at Macon.com. We love hearing from you. I apologize for my low energy today. I'm just getting over this cold. <laughs> but on that note, I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And it's taken me all my energy to say this. And this is Making It Up.